Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we pray as we look into your word this afternoon that you would be in our midst, that you would work in our hearts, that you would open our eyes to understand and to believe and to put into practice uh, these things, that they would be uh, useful in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to be looking this afternoon at Psalm 138, if you want to turn there. And this is a, it's a Psalm of David. It's eight verses. And so let's just start by reading this passage of God's Word that God gave us through the the mouth of David, the pen of David, the scripture of David. But as we sang, it is not of him, it is through Christ that it came through him as well. And so listen to God's Word. I give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give thanks O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall bring, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. And your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. The word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to God. We have here a psalm that sets forth for us, as the title says, a pattern of prayer. It is a prayer of David who is, we know, the man after God's own heart. And David here speaks in verse 1 of giving thanks to Yahweh with his whole heart. If we are going to think of the pattern of prayer, the first place to start is, and that is, uh, that's spoken of right here, this first place to start is the heart. Now, in our day, we have departed pretty far from a biblical worldview in many ways, including in Christian circles. And so when many people hear even a certain English words like, uh, like the heart, uh, they, uh, we have kind of twisted uh, the, the word into meaning something different. We have to be careful that we don't read into the word what seems normal to us in our own culture, and we have to be careful not to fail to remember or to look into how the Bible conveys from God's own worldview the idea, and here we're talking about the idea of the heart. How does God think about that? What does it mean in the scriptures when it talks this way? What I mean is that when people in our day hear the heart, they often think of their feelings, Think of how many church settings where people are talking about uh, heartfelt worship. Uh, Oh, you could really feel the Spirit in that place. As if going to worship is about what we are to be made to feel or what we are to receive instead of uh, about honoring God and worshiping God. Uh, For some people, to be going to worship is to get something for me. 
Uh, People leave church settings sometimes because it, it isn't giving them what they wanted to feel. And they will abandon their relationships and commitments to people uh, in what is supposed to be their family because they want to come and get an experience. And so sometimes people will say, that worship really touched my heart. But they don't mean that it brought me to repentance. They don't mean that it made me more committed to Christ. If someone's heart is touched, they are more likely saying that it gave me warm feelings. Or, or sometimes they say, my heart was melted. And so sentimentality uh, is, is a widespread thing in our day. And it's another way uh, of speaking of this subjective or feeling-based uh, pursuit that has taken over a lot of worship settings. Uh, people want something that is moving in the sense of emotions, Uh, The church today has been pretty heavily impacted by a culture of being really interested in our feelings and managing our feelings. And and then, on the other side, trying to manipulate how people feel. And we want it. It's widely true that the church in our day is interested in things that can make us feel a certain way. And that is what is valued in a lot of worship settings, how it makes you feel. But in the ancient world, there were some people who were interested in making you feel a certain way. And they were called the sophists. The sophists were people who could move people really well. They were masters of persuasion. Their rhetorical skill and their eloquence and how they presented things was all funneled into trying to impact people, and they were doing it completely apart from the truth. It was like a debate class where one student is assigned a topic and another is assigned to argue the opposite viewpoint, and then they have to argue that case back and forth, and then they switch And the other one has to argue the case from the opposite side, and it has nothing to do with what is true. It has to do with persuading. But the sophists, they would choose their topic, and they would, in skill, try to persuade people, and they would try to develop their skills and hone them to get better and better at it in order to get a certain response. And that was without regard for what is true. They traveled around. They were, they were uh, travelers. They would travel around, and they were compensated by their hearers. They would do it for money in every town, and depending on how good they were, they would make more or less money. Sophists were really, uh, they were like really talented salespeople for ideas, and they were trying to gain the skills and the talents of moving people, and of course it had nothing of value if it wasn't true. Well, Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 that we read talks about that. He says uh, that he or we, as he puts it, we the people in the church or the people announcing the gospel, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The open statement of the truth. 
In other words, Paul is saying, we're not trying to manipulate anyone with talent or skill. We're not trying to do that. But what is he trying to do? What are we trying to do? Well, in the previous chapter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that we didn't read, he says that the people themselves, those people, the Corinthians that he's writing to, he says, they are the tablets, and God has written on their hearts. He's talking about the heart here. God has written on their hearts so that they become a letter for Christ. Their hearts have been written on. And so I'm saying that idea of heart that Paul is talking about is not what people mean today when they often are talking about the heart. The heart in the Bible means the core of a person, who they really are. It is the place of resolve. It is who we are at bottom. It's who we are when push comes to shove. It's our nature, our motives. And when we speak from the heart, that is a speech with integrity in the sense that it's not fake. It is not a show. It's not underhanded ways. It's not manipulation. And it is way deeper than merely our emotions. And it has to do with our most ultimate convictions from the inside out. So the psalm here speaks of giving thanks to God. David, the man after God's own heart, says, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. The first thing to think about here, to to consider, to mull over in your mind, uh, when we pray, is, is where is our heart if we're praying? If we're going to pray to God from the heart, we have to be aware of our own heart. This gets right at the idea that Jesus speaks of in Luke chapter 14 about counting the cost. Where are we with our commitment to God? The scriptures say that we need to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. We have also shifted in our day kind of into a a conversion-centered way of thinking also in the church where we think about the conversion, but we don't think about continuing thinking about where our heart is. The question is not, did you believe once upon a time when you walked an aisle or raised a hand or, or prayed a prayer, but the call to us all the time is, do I believe right now? Am I operating in a believing way in, in what I'm thinking about or talking about or doing? Where is my heart at? People who are more subjectively focused on feelings might be sometimes heard to say, well, my heart just wasn't really in it this morning. I stopped praying because it just seemed like or felt like I didn't really feel it. Um, Sometimes people say, I've I've heard people say, uh, it feels like my prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. Have you ever heard anybody say that? But I'm saying that those feelings are something that we ought to repent of. God says that he hears. And if he says he does, then he does. And if he says he loves you, he does. Doubting him or just not feeling it, that's not the way of integrity or of commitment. It's not what we're called to, the resolve that we're called to in our heart of hearts. It's not the comfort that we are to enjoy. 
which is a feeling. We need to be resolved where our heart is. So the psalm in the ESV here is translated, I give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart. Some translations, I don't know what else we have here in the room, some translations say here, I confess to you with my whole heart. The word confess, meaning to speak to God from the heart, uh, agreeing with Him. The word con in Latin means with, and the word, the part of the word fess, confess, uh, is the, it's from the word about speaking. Uh, to speak with God from the heart, or you might say, to speak the same as God. To confess is to speak the same as God. It has to do with agreeing with Him. And so in our, in our self-assessment, uh, we are to assess where our heart is with God. And we are to speak with God from the heart, or to, we could say, speak the same as God. Confess with speak. Speak the same. It could be thanks. It could be praise. It could be confession of sin. It could be professing our faith. But to confess to God with one's whole heart is to give one's agreement to God, to be on the same page, to speak according to how things actually are in reality, to agree with what is true. To confess to God with one's whole heart is to wholly see things as He does. And so we speak the same, we think the same, think our thoughts after Him. Cornelius Van Til is famous for saying, our hearts are to be in sync with God. See, this is the proper posture of prayer and worship. And that's the way that we see it in the Scripture. Not only as David does it, but most importantly, as Christ Himself does it. The Father and the Son, in every way, at all times, are in sync They are in perfect agreement. Jesus is our example of a human who always conforms his will to his Father's will, and he does that from the heart. And so should we as we bow down to God in prayer. And so next when we pray, we need to realize that just as we come into the presence of God in his heavenly throne room, when we come into a worship service corporately, There is also the reality that all our lives are before His face there too, in the heavenly places. We are not off on our own doing our own thing. When we go to God in prayer, we recognize that we are in the very throne room of God. And I want to tell you, it's not a private matter. It's something that is before His throne where others are present as well. The spirits of the righteous made perfect are in the throne room of God. The holy angels are in the throne room of God. We are connected to and enter in and are in the midst of what is called the divine council where God sits enthroned. The idea of the divine council is something that's throughout the scriptures. You see it in the book of Job where there is deliberation of the council there. And there are many other places in Scripture that speak about this reality, where God lets us see what's there, like over in Daniel or in a number of the Psalms, where it speaks of the gods with a little g, Elohim, the gods with a little g, which is a term often for the angelic realm or the the powers that exist. 
Every power that God has established in the heavenly places reports to him that they are given their power by him. The angels of God are called gods with a little g, and the Bible speaks of a gathering in the throne room. And so when we pray, we should recognize that we are offering prayers not only before the face of God, but before the throne room of heaven as well, just as in worship. We are not isolated, but we're seen. Remember the scene in Luke uh, chapter 15 and verse 7. Jesus says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There's rejoicing in heaven. They see. Or in verse 10 of that same chapter, Jesus says again, Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Matthew 18, Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So there is, There's witnessing, there's reporting, there's accountability, there's uh, what's happening on earth is known. There should be no question that we're seen and our repentance is known. Our prayers are before the divine council. They are going up into heaven. John has witnessed about this in the book of Revelation, just as our, our praises are there as well. Our prayers are poured out. See, this is acknowledged. Um, if you look back through church history at worship services, in every ancient uh, worship service that we have a record of and the, the liturgy that they practiced and, and also down through the Reformation in the Reformed tradition, there has always been, in every early service and down through the Reformation, uh, there has always been this acknowledgement that uh, when we come to the Lord's table, that, that this is not just an earthly matter. Uh, in fact, they, there's often recitation that we lift up our hearts we lift them up to the Lord. There's a, there's a heavenly reality that's going on. And it's not pretend. We're not just uh, being sentimental about what happened 2,000 years ago. But we are entering in and we're participating with the, the, uh, the heavenly realities. We are sinking ourselves up to what is going on in heaven. So in this psalm, first there is prayer from the heart. And then there is the context of our prayers, which is here, the heavenly throne room, before the gods, as heaven and earth are connected, and we are there where God is, just as He is here where we are. And notice in verse 2, we are praying with a certain direction in view. In the Old Testament, they always prayed toward the temple in Jerusalem. Just like the Muslims stole that idea, and they pray towards Mecca, and they have those Regular times of prayer during the day, that's a copy of the Christian faith. But in the Old Testament, God's people prayed toward Jerusalem at that time, at regular times. And, and, but but what, uh, what do we do now, uh, now that the temple's not there in Jerusalem? It's been torn down. You can't pray towards that anymore. That's not the place that we have to pray toward or, or go to. Well, remember the story of the woman at the well where Jesus tells her that a time is coming and has now come when people won't have to worship on that mountain in Samaria, Mount Gerizim, where, where he was talking to her right by there, uh, nor in Jerusalem in that temple. But the true worshipers, Jesus says, will worship wherever they are. They will worship in spirit and in truth. Well, how is that? Well, it's because we point our prayers now towards Christ. 
He is our gathering place. He is our temple. He is the connection of heaven to earth that we are sharing in by the Spirit. He is our access to the heavenly throne room where we can boldly enter his presence. Where all rule and authority comes from, from the top where God is. From where every throne and dominion and principality and power and authority and rule is ordered by him and ruled over. Because Christ is there to whom all authority has been given. This is where every knee of authority and rule and responsibility must ultimately bow. To give account and to share in to put their governing and rule under his governing and rule and administration of the universe. So prayer is syncing up with the top, with the king, with the heart of God. David as a king is a man after God's own heart. And he as the king of his rule is putting all of that under the dominion of God. He's pointing his prayers to that place from which God rules. He is joining his rule to God's rule. And David understands that rule because God has made known his steadfast love to David, just as he has to us and to the people of old. The Hebrew word for steadfast, if you have an ESV, it's, it's translated steadfast love. The Hebrew word is chesed. Some of the, some of the other ones are uh, everlasting love. Sometimes it's mercy. Uh, but I like the ESV because it, every time, it, it doesn't change it. Some translations change it at different times. ESV if it says hesed, it's just steadfast love, and you know where that appears, because it's an important... Usually words don't, don't carry a lot of meaning. Uh, you have to look at the context. But when that word appears, it has meaning. Uh, it means the personal, covenant, contractual love of God. It means his, his, uh, his covenant love, his contractual love, his love that has to do with having bound himself in a commitment like a marriage to his people. It's a love that can't fail because it depends on him. In Genesis 15, God made his covenant love known by splitting open some animals and, and then promising to put the world back right. And he came down and he passed through the middle of those dead animals to confirm his promise to save the world, to put the world back right one day. He was saying, I'm so, so committed to this promise that I'm making that here I'm demonstrating I'm willing to give my life in order to bring it to pass. That's Genesis 15. And of course, we know the story of the Bible. We know the rest of the story. God did send his son. He did give his life to accomplish what he is committed to. His love is not only as big as the created universe, but his love extends in measure to his own life because God is love. And he has demonstrated his love now in Christ. But God's word, you see, reveals who he is. It reveals his heart. David's committed with his heart. God has revealed his heart, who he ultimately is. So keep looking at the psalm. Look at verse 3 here. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. David has seen it himself. He can testify 
In David's story, you know, there was the lion and there was the bear and then there was the giant and and then there was betrayal in his own kingdom from within his own family. And yet God has been faithful to David and it's personal. David says, you answered me. That's personal. It reminds me of where Paul in Galatians 2.20 says, The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's personal. And it's timely, too. David says, On the day that I called, you answered. So David knows the heart of God toward him. And David's heart, by believing in God's covenant faithfulness, his chesed, is being made like the heart of God in commitment. He is a man after God's own heart, becoming like Christ, who is the exact and perfect image of God. God in very nature. David is becoming by grace what Christ is by nature. David the king. David the man after God's own heart. But one day, David knows there is coming a time When every rule and every power in the universe, every principality, every king is going to bow down and submit their authority under Christ's authority. Look at verses 4 and 5. It's all in the future tense, and I'm going to read it that way and add a word in verse 4 to make sure that you get that this... uh, So I'm reading the ESV here. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord... For they will have heard the words of your mouth, and they will sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord is spreading, and the acknowledgement of his glory is spreading. The good news of the steadfast love of the Lord is spreading. The message of Christ, the gospel, is spreading, and it is impacting, it will impact, all rulers. And one day, they will submit their rule to his rule. The king of kings will have the kings acknowledging him. So this is the reordering of the universe by Christ. Every knee is going to be bowed at some point, either now or later. And if a king submits his rule, then those under his rule will be rightly ordered too. Things are coming back into the right hierarchy, the right order in the universe with God at the top, Christ on the throne. And every rule ordered rightly one day. Look at verse 6. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. He cares about the rule under him all the way from the top to the bottom. Those who lift themselves up and do not submit to him, he's far from them. But he regards the lowly, the humble, the bowed down. In fact, God has come down himself. He has bowed the heavens and come down, as the psalm says. And he's come down to get, he's come down to get the lowly, to rescue them, to heal the brokenhearted, to rescue those who couldn't rescue themselves and they know it. Let the humble hear and be glad. Psalm 34. To take the low, he comes to the bottom to take the low, the lowest of the low, all the way back up. To renew and reorder the universe. Jesus came 
to a food trough. And he got considered an illegitimate child. And he is devoted to the widow and the orphan. He's devoted to that. He recognizes and honors that widow who gave the two mites. He came and to the blind and to the lame. He even came to fishermen and made use of them. He had to go through Samaria, didn't he? To bring that woman at the well in the town that was near her and gather them into his family in that contractual, that covenantal love, that marriage relationship at that well where in the Old Testament, that's where you find a wife. And God came to get that woman at the well. So he loves the brokenhearted. He forgives and cleanses sinners. And he gives them life. And you are the man. That's us. He gives to us sinners life. And he will also get us through this life. Look at verse 7. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hands against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. That's from trouble. In this world we'll have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Let the humble hear and be glad. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm good. Psalm 23. I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I shall not want. David says that as a king of his people. And Jesus says it to us. David foretold of Jesus. He was told about Jesus in 2 Samuel 7. That this king would be worshipped and he would rule forever, this son of David. And that is why David himself was born. It was his purpose to bear witness about him. Look at verse 8. The Lord will fulfill, fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. David knows what his purpose is, and he is fulfilling it here in penning this psalm. He is bearing witness to the steadfast love of the Lord, which goes back to that promise that God promised his life about and the son who is to come. He is bearing witness to the son of David, and that is David's purpose. It's just like John the Baptist's purpose as the forerunner. He says, uh, he must increase and I must decrease. It's about him. It's just the same thing as what Moses does in Deuteronomy 18.15, where he says, the, there's coming somebody after me. The Lord, will, Lord your God will raise up for you, among you, from among you, a prophet like me. It's to him that you should listen. It's not about me. Moses spoke of him. <coughs> Moses spoke of Christ. See, that was Moses' purpose. That was John the Baptist's purpose. That was David's purpose. It's our purpose too, isn't it? For our whole heart is to be devote, devoted to him as well. And if we believe, we will speak. We will fulfill our purpose, as David is speaking of it here. But it is, it is God who is at work to fulfill that purpose. Verse 8, David says, Yahweh will fulfill his purpose for me. And that is what Paul later says and speaks about in 1 Thessalonians 5, talking about the eschatology of the matter, 
when the finish line comes, the good news, it's, he's talking about the good news of what is coming. Where Paul says there, he says, And now may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, then he says, The one who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. He will fulfill your purpose. See, that's the promise that all of God's demands upon us, we read it this morning, that we would be perfect as he is perfect. All that God demands in the universe, in the right ordering of things, he will accomplish. He commands us to be spotless, to be pure and perfect, and he will bring it to pass. He will present us spotless before his throne of grace one day. He commands us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. But he doesn't just command it. He's bringing it to pass. He's going to fulfill the purpose for which we were made, that we would glorify God and enjoy him forever. Apart from you, you can't do that. Apart from him, you can't do that. But with him, you can run against a troop. With him, he who began the good work will bring it to completion. He will fulfill his purpose for you. If you look to Christ, if you trust in him, you will be radiant. You will one day shine like the sun. You will become like what you worship. Not because you saved or rescued or resurrected or sanctified yourself, but because God sent his son to put you and the world right. So thank him from the heart. Direct your prayers to him from the heart. Acknowledge him in all of your life. And do that before all the universe, which is before his face. That's your purpose. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that you have made us for yourself. And you are making us realize the purpose for which we have been made. Help us to glorify and to enjoy you. Help us to run this race with endurance, not by our own strength, but through yours. We thank you for the promise that you will present us spotless, that no one can snatch us from your hand, that you who began the work will complete it. And, Father, we commit our lives into your care. In Jesus' name, amen.